Hey people, this is Aram. After Dylan and I discussed the Animorphs at length in the Mind Flayer episode and DM's notes, we decided to take a look at the books. I have read the first one, and we have produced a podcast based on me reading the books for the first time and Dylan walking through the memories of his childhood. The rest of these episodes will be on Patreon at our $10 level. And if we get above 500 bucks a month, we will release the first season publicly once it's wrapped. So please enjoy this pilot of Podspeak. And remember, the controllers are everywhere. My name is Aram. And my name is Dylan. We can't tell you our last names or even what city we are in. If we did, they could find us. And that would be the end of the show. We're sending this message so that more people can learn the truth. Maybe then, somehow, the human race can survive until the Andalites return and rescue us. Until then, we will be discussing each book in the Animorph series as I read them for the first time. And I'll be guiding this journey as I reconnect with stories I read a long time ago. Welcome, Welcome to Pod This was your first experience with the Animorphs, shy of me yelling at you when I was supposed to be talking about VJ. Yes, yes. This is me reading the first chapter as opposed to you basically summarizing it for me. What's your verdict? What do you think? I like it. For the most part, I like how she writes the kids. Occasionally, they're like, you know, no teenager has ever turned to their friends and, and said, but we're just kids. So there's little things like that that, you know, I'm like, eh. But for the most part, the writing's really solid. I think you're you're right in general, but I can also imagine like given the context, like there is a point, especially with teenagers, where you are aware that you can hide behind your childhood. So when you're actually afraid, specifically afraid for your life, I could imagine at like let's call these kids what? 14, 15. That's what I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. There was some reference to like trying to get onto the high school team or something like that. So I assume 14. That is a prime age where I would go, we can't do this. We are children. I don't think a teenager would ever use the word kids or children. I just well, don't. Children, but, no, but... Yeah, you know, I think they would just say, you know, we're not adults. Yeah, I think that's fair, but small enough that I don't think it's worth complaining about. Exactly. Tiny. So beyond that, beyond my little, you know, nitpickings, um, I enjoyed it. I think some of it is absurd. 100%, yeah. The Andalite ship, how she describes spaceships are like, none of these would ever possibly work. But it's cool. Like, it's neat that it has a stinger and the, Andal and the Andalites have a stinger, so it gets you kind of in there. It's, it's, it's a very Green Lantern setup. As you were saying, Alien crashes to Earth and is like, hey, kids, have some magic rings. Yeah. They all touch a cube to get the ability to turn into animals from this first and, uh, Andalite, which is like the prince of the Andalites. Do we want to do like a uh, a summary thing or do we just want to ramble for a bit? 
let me summarize it like this. Okay. Five teenagers on their way home from like an arcade or something decide to cut through either an abandoned or unfinished construction site against their parents' wishes in order to not have to walk all the way around it and get home faster. They see a streak in the sky. It ends up being a spaceship that lands next to them. A very wounded Andalite comes out that looks like a blue horse centaur thing, kind of. Mm -hmm. She loves to put horns on things. The, <laughs> the descriptions are, and these horns. So it's, it's like these like eyes on the end of stalks that can turn and rotate. It, it's a weird looking thing, but the main thing is that big scorpion tail yeah. coming off the back. Don't know if they're poisonous. They're not, it's a blade basically talks to the kids and is like, hey kids, uh, there are brain slugs and they're in a lot of people and most of your planet has them everywhere. You've, you're like basically this close to being taken over. We, we, we fought a big thing on the moon, we lost and I'm the last one. Have some powers and go fight the brain slugs. Pretty much, yeah. Flying over town, a whole town, right? An entire yeah. town. You could have landed and then like, who are the strongest among you? But maybe, maybe they were like, okay, there's five kids here. It's secluded. So I won't immediately draw attention. This is my only chance to pass on powers. We'll talk a little bit more about this going forward. That comes back around a little bit. She writes, what, like 50 of these books. And that's not including occasional like, just random side stories. There is an entire book that is about the war in which the Hork-Bajir are conquered. Like by the Yurks, the entire species is taken. One of them is specifically that Andalite leading up to that crash. And it, that's what it is. He managed to do it gently, but it was a crash. There was right. no wisdom to it. It wasn't, oh, this is the best spot for it. It's I'm not getting any further. And then the kids show up and he's like, all right, listen, here's the deal. You're all going to die. <laughs> this is the best shot I can give you. It seems like quite a risk because as stated, there's only one Andalite that's ever been taken over by a brain slug. For the most part, I yeah. guess they just can't. It just doesn't work. But there's one time it did, and the thing is terrifying. It's Absolutely. such a monster. Also, it's clearly touched animals that aren't from Earth, which makes mm -hmm. it even scarier because you don't know what you're gonna face. The huge risk this Andalite has taken in given five human bodies who now have this ability because they could be taken over rather easily. So this is the interesting thing, because some of this, like I read this first when I was a kid, obviously. And going back to it, what they say outright is the goal with Earth is that there are so many humans. Like it's not apparently our grand superpower in the universe is basically being rabbits. <laughs> That's it. We're the we are the rabbits of the universe. If you put a gun in every human's hand and send them into space as the Yurk army, the Andalites lose anyway. Yeah. Like, we are apparently sufficient in number that we will turn the tide of an intergalactic war, which feels a little weird. But also when you see, like, the size and the weird behaviors of some of the aliens, you're like, you know what? Sure. Like, we talked a little bit about the Taxons 
and like their entire biology and species is fucked. You could maybe get enough of them on raw numbers, but you can't use them as an actual army. They're not going to work. Orc-Vizier are a fairly passive herbivorous race. <laughs> there aren't going to be huge numbers of them. Andalites, you know, are the enemy, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but people. People are good for just general purpose. Billions of us. Exactly. That is maybe the first half of the book. The back half is basically just setting up how fucking bad it is to start with. And it's not good. You talked about in our in our Mind Flayer episode, the idea of if we can just ingratiate ourselves, if we can create sort of a religion based around us, you know, no, this is all we're to be trusted. You know, we're, we're members of the community. That's how you get a parasitic creature into society. Yep. That is specifically and exactly what they did. There is a community action group called the Sharing. The Sharing. First of all, wait, stop. If anyone came up to me and was like, would you like to join the Sharing? I'd be like, no. You're a cult. Because that's a cult. Yeah. The second I heard that name, I'd go, cult, 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 and I would walk away. And even like, even as a child, like, <laughs> they show up to the meeting and they're talking to people who are all having a great time. But one of the things they continuously talk about is like, they talk about, oh, you know, here's the meeting. We'll talk about it and maybe you can join as associate members. And then maybe you'll move up to full membership after the leadership discusses whether you're appropriate for the role or not. Yeah. And all of the full members are talking about how, you know, the world really opened up and my world changed and my entire life got better when I became a full member of the sharing. That is literally Scientology. And fucking Marcos calls it out. Yep, he does. Which Marcos in general, I, like, he is my least like kid. <laughs> but his constant negativity does then expose what the rest of the kids can't see. I like the depth to him because lost his mom. Yeah. His dad fell apart after that. And he is and always was the class clown. So like through these books, you get like he is sharp and he's very very useful to have on the team but the entire time like he is broken a little bit and he is sad and he is just masking it so the moment anything starts going wrong he's just like no the world's gonna collapse like he's a walking anxiety attack yeah no i get that yeah and he is a teenager they're allowed to be moody yeah yeah so like he's running around making shitty jokes and trying to make light of the situation until he's sitting there going like, no, you don't recognize how bad this is. You don't recognize how bad things can get. He did have a heart to heart with Jake in this one. He's like, look, you've never faced anything like this. You don't understand what it's like to lose someone. If we go to war, you are going to lose people and you're not ready. And he's probably right. When they get these powers, they wind up running away. The Yerks see them try to get away and chase them. They know there were kids at the construction site, so they're trying to hunt them down. And immediately, there are cops asking around, and there's a news story saying, hey, some people thought they saw a UFO, but, you know, cops looked around and we found traces of fireworks, and it turns out that kids were shooting off fireworks, and that's what you saw. And we realize, oh God, the Yerks are in charge of this town's entire police force. Or at least enough of them. We later find out their principal or their assistant principal 
is a controller is can is a yerk in a human body and the entire time jake's older brother who has been acting weird is trying to get them to join the sharing and when they have this heart to heart like before that jake threw a punch at marco because marco pointed out like you know your brother's one of them right yep like he saw it immediately and he was right like all of this comes down to like jake you are one day going to possibly have to kill your brother right are you ready for that because you don't know what death is like yeah I mean, I get it. I get it. It's just like eventually like it wears on you a little bit, but I'm sure that his character will evolve beyond that as we continue. This is one of the things I really like about this going back is like, like I said, as a kid, you don't recognize a level of depth that these books tend to have. Like when you read them and you're aware of how horrifying this is, of how dire this whole thing is, it feels a lot different. It's also got one of those setups that's, you get this a lot in youth fiction um, where there's a group of people, Jake's the leader, but it really should be Cassie. Cassie should totally be the leader. She's best at transforming. She's very level-headed. So this is the really nice thing is when you're reading through the books, Jake is the, is the leader, is the figurehead, certainly. Everyone takes control at some point. Each book is from a different kid's perspective. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's not always Jake. Okay. What you wind up seeing is that Cassie sort of is the brains of the operation. She's the most empathetic. She knows what she's doing. She's the most resourceful, but she's kind of a passive person and she takes a little bit more of a backseat. So Jake turns to her constantly and then just says what she tells him to say. <laughs> Rachel, like, as they come into things, Rachel is a soldier through and through. Really? She is here to go to war. Awesome. And Marcos is the one who sits there and tells them, hey, guys, we're going to die. You should calm down and maybe think a little harder first. Which is a good thing to have Hugely to. Hugely important. It's always someone it's always good to have someone to poke holes in your plans before someone's poking holes in you. And then you know how we talked about the kid who like lost his parents and is afraid of death and is making the entire argument about how we shouldn't do this because we're gonna have to kill our loved ones and also we might die and then our loved ones will have to miss us. Yeah, he's not the sad one. Let's talk about Tobias. You will not get all of Tobias for a very long time. Yeah, he's he's kind of the least we know about right now. No, he's a little fucking weirdo, okay. is the long and the short of it. It's just like he showed up at school. He's not particularly tough. He's a little odd. He got bullied. Jake backed him up once. And since then, he's been like, oh, Jake backs me up. Jake's my friend. Yeah. Jake is like, I thought they were being mean to that kid. Now that kid follows me places. If your general thing is getting hit, yeah, and this guy didn't hit you, in fact, stopped you from being hit, that is what a friend must be. We all know one of those kids from school who just by dint of not being their bully, they thought you were their best friend. Yeah. And, you know, the results of that vary. But a lot of the times they're decent kids. They're not going to be mean to him, but he's not really their friend. This is clearly the kid who has read fantasy novels his entire life, saw totally. an alien ship come down, and then was like, fucking finally. And when they all run that first time, and, the, and that Prince Andalite's dying, and the enemy bug ships are descending, he stays with the alien. They mm -hmm. clearly have 
deeper communication. He was able to get the telepathy a little easier, and therefore he the Andalite projects a ton of stuff into his head that he has to then piece through. So he, he, he's got a, like an encyclopedia. He is the repository of knowledge for now. Then we get to the thing that makes him the saddest creature, is that we talk through the entire thing like he's a little bit of a weirdo. He gets really excited about all of this. You know, he turns into a bird for the first time, he turns into a red tailed hawk and talks about how amazing flying is. And, you yeah. know, I don't even want to turn back. Human bodies feel like a prison now that I've been able to fly. And at the end of the book, our major sort of plot event after getting the powers was they find the first Yerk pool. Yerks cannot actually survive in a human brain. They have to come out. It's under their school. Yeah. I was like, this is such a Buffy setup. This is exactly what Buffy the Vampire would do. It is. However, if you have control over all the figures of authority and you need a place that a random community group can gather and people are going to walk in and out of all the time that no one's going to question people of basically any age, as long as they're associated with that group. Places where you'll be left alone. It really does work. It does work, except for how. There's a secret door in the back of a janitor's closet that leads to an underground pool layer. Like, when did they install that? How did they get it done? This is the major question that sort of underpins all of this is like, how long has this been happening? Because that's the right. other major thing, right? Like the sharing is at this point an institution. The police department is on side. And our major question is, how did they get, you know, a basement taken over under the school? I mean, maybe they've been here for a fucking decade. Maybe they built the school with the basement. Maybe. Like, I don't really know, and I don't think they ever really get into that. It's one of those things where if there's a little line about how our school just opened because they built this new one, or there was a huge amount of reconstruction last summer, just a little line like that would have been nice. I think you're right, but I also think like... It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's a kid's book, right? Like... That is a question that kids aren't going to ask. And it's a question that, like, is easy enough to, like, handle with a throwaway line. So you let it go. It's just like when we were talking to uh, Carlos about Star Trek. People will ask two questions mm -hmm. and then they'll just accept it. Like, how was there a pool under a school? Well, they started building it early. Why? Well, because they planned and they got here early and they knew they had to have these pools. So it's like a 20-year thing before the rest of them could really come over. Okay, I accept that. The thing about the Yerk pool that is fundamentally terrifying is, you know, you have to let the Yerks back into the water and they feed for a little while and then they can hop back in the host and wander off. I have questions about that. The entire time that they are feeding, they have people locked in cages waiting to get the Yerk back into them. And then there are the people who have accepted their lot in life, who signed on to do this, who are just like having a good time. You know, off in a corner, watching TV, chilling while their brain slug gets its meal. And then I have so many questions about this part. I, I honestly don't have a lot of answers for you on that one because it's terrifying. It's totally terrifying. So not only are you taken over, but you but you're, are taken over repeatedly. The process does not sound fun. You'll know what's going to happen the second time, because if there's people volunteering, 
there must be some sort of state where they go into a mind palace or whatever, where they're present, but kind of being along for the ride. Because they seem to remember that. Oh, I'm not quite clear on that if they remember what happens. In no, they're there the whole time. So there must be a way to make that pleasant so that once you volunteer once, you're willing to volunteer continuously, right? So one of the things, especially when you look at like the way that the sharing operates, that messaging of your life will get better, things will get easier. I honestly think that these were just sad people. Mm. Like I think anybody who has been through kind of a really bad depressive patch knows that feeling of just coasting through your own life. Having that feeling of serving a higher purpose, being part of something bigger, and then honestly, does it feel that different from just being sad? Those people are terrifying because I don't know that they're unreasonable. They're just wrong. Right. They're just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely be one of the ones that fought. I mean, I fight everything. <laughs> I would definitely fight this. And you I would, would lose, but I would fight. die. But yeah, I totally would you die. You wouldn't even die. You would just be fucking. I would spend the next year backpacking across the country, touching everything. I would go on an Alaska whale tour so I could touch a blue whale because they would never fucking see that coming. They actually got into that, though, because like, yeah, the first time they go, Cassie's mom is a veterinarian who works with the zoo. That is convenient. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you got it. You got to set yourself up for success, right? Yeah. It's a good move as the author. Uh, so they go in and their first thing is trying to acquire what will later be referred to as the battle morphs. Right. Just they all have to have something that they can turn into and just tank. Marco gets a gorilla. Jake, by sheer accident, winds up with a tiger. And Rachel gets an elephant. Elephant's pretty good. It's pretty solid. She also winds up with a bear later, and that becomes her default. They opened a door for the rhino and then shut it immediately because they, they were afraid. But, ooh, that would have been a good one. That would have been a good one. Uh, but that's also, like, that entire sequence is basically handling your major concern, is that whole thing of the only way to get in is through the back and if we get caught back here, not only do we get in trouble, I get in trouble with my mom specifically. So Cassie's <laughs> like, we can't do this. We can't be here. So they get a couple of things and they get out and they mention like, oh, we've got dolphins. And immediately Rachel's like, I love dolphins. And they're like, what the fuck are we going to use a dolphin, a dolphin for? <laughs> it's, it's just like a D&D game. We're like, well, I could as a druid turn into a dolphin. But when the yeah. fuck are we ever going to use it? In like three or four books. But like... The one with the dolphin on the cover, you'll see it. You know, you're talking about like, oh, what will they see? They'll never see a blue whale coming. Sure. Why would you have a blue whale? Why, when will that help you? In an enclosed space. <laughs> that is when it will help you. Yeah, not really. So some of the rules you don't know. Okay. When you transform, and this is obviously loosey-goosey because like haircuts and shit like that. But when you transform, it is based on the DNA of the thing that you're transforming into, which means that if you are injured, we abide by druid rules. A cut on your face is not genetic. Right. You heal. If you lose an arm in morph and turn back to your human form, you turn back healthy. Right. And then the next time you turn into that animal, you turn back fully formed. But if you are injured 
mid-morph. Like, say, while you're turning into a giant creature and a bunch of people with disintegrator rays and a bunch of weird snake gorillas covered in knives are standing around you. Right. You will die. Right. And it's not an instant thing. It takes no, like a minute. No, it takes minute. time and it's regularly horrifying. Sure. Like some of the descriptions in this book, fairly benign because they turned into what? A dog, an a eagle, cat. a cat, a dog. I love that Jake turns into his own dog. And is immediately the happiest person. Gets angry at his dog in the backyard. The writer is really good at taking basic traits from animals and then transferring them onto people. Yeah, and that becomes like one of the major things is like a lot of the morphs that are useful are not always practical because you wind up having to fight it you are not taking the shape of something you're becoming the thing when you morph into a dog you're now a dog so when jake turns into a dog looks out into his backyard and sees his own dog in the backyard walking around he flips out because there's a dog in my backyard you're not supposed to be there that's my backyard when Tobias is like as a cat. Oh, and they can also mentally project when they're animals. That's very important. They just have a telepathy because God, I they need to be able to talk. <laughs> they need to be able to talk. I, I love when Tobias turns into a cat. He's telling Jake, get the string, get the string, pull it along. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. the best <laughs> game. <laughs> Talking about like, man, I wish there was a mouse around because then I would be able to hear its heartbeat. I could track it. It would run on its little skittery feet and I would chase it. They're just so excited to be the animals. Yeah. And that's another very important thing. If And they were warned about this. If they stay in animal form for more than two hours, there is a risk that they will just become the animal, get lost in them. Not a risk. It's, it, it's, a, it's a hard rule. It okay. is a hard limit. If you are in morph for two human hours, I don't know how they wound up with that one. That's, that's a fun thing is that it wound up being just a round number on Earth. <laughs> Two hours is arbitrary because time is arbitrary. But how did they know that, that it would be the two-hour limit in humans if they've never done this before? We don't worry about it too much. Sure. Fair enough. Like they can, They're touching an animal to absorb a piece of their DNA. Where does that DNA live? Why, why, how is that in them now? Like, there are so many questions, if you want to get into the science of it, that don't work. Yeah. Even shit like... Say fucking Rachel decides to dye her hair. Well, she morphs. She turns back. Like, have you just ruined your disguise? Will this maintain your haircut? Right, right, right. That is interesting because it, like it only maintains things that are part of your DNA. They're very clear about that. So it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Her dye is not part of her DNA. But that's the thing is there are things where you just go for narrative convenience. Let it be. Yeah. So, yeah, for two hours... You can be whatever, and you have to turn back. And that is a constant threat. And that's what we get this time, is when they go in, first this sets up our excuse for why they get away with it for as long as they do. Because they go into the yerk pool, and they see the people that are trapped, and immediately the response is, well, fuck it, we gotta break them out. So they smash the cages open, Visser 3 is around, turns into a giant eight-legged, eight-arm, eight-headed, fire-throwing monster and tries to kill them, chase them out of the cavern. Some people get away, some people don't. They manage to save some folks, except we know that at this point, Yerks are in control of the town, so it's not like they're going to go to the media and fix anything. It's just that you've gotten those people out. 
but they know now. You've got those people out and they know. Except those people are also known and are going to be hunted. 100%. It's a, very, it's a very ugly situation. But the important thing is when they do this, Rachel turns into an elephant to get people out. And immediately on turning into animals, the scream that comes out is Andalites. Because only one species can turn into animals. Right. And that's how they get to function for the next however many books, is they think they're hunting Andalites. Two big questions about that. Yes. The power works by touching an animal and absorbing its DNA. And then you can become it whenever you want. Correct. Does that include people? They talk about it a little bit where there's kind of a weird moral feeling of like, they don't want to cross that line of turning into other people. Right. But they could. They could. That's interesting. Okay. The other question then on that part of it, if I touch a tiger and now I can mm -hmm. become a tiger, I'm a tiger genetically. Yes. Why can't one of the other kids then just touch me? I honestly don't know. Fair enough. I, I don't think they get into it. I don't remember that particularly, but you're 100% right. There's a moment. I think part of the reason that one doesn't really come up is just because like one of the rules is when they're absorbing DNA, when they're acquiring an animal, that's what that's the word they'll use to refer to it later, is when they're acquiring something, it goes into a trance, which means right. it usually isn't that big a deal for the five of them. If someone gets it, the rest of them can. Right. And then there are other things like when they get birds, they all pick their favorite bird and like, yeah, you could just all wander over to somebody who has something already and get it. But then you can't be your bird. Narratively, you can't just be five rhinos. It yeah. wouldn't be as interesting of a story. Exactly. So there's a whole bunch of that stuff. Like the other major problem is the thing where that would be the most useful is stealing Visser 3's aliens. Absolutely. But you can only acquire a creature in your actual body. Right. Which means that to be able to get that alien, you need to be a human, wander over and touch the guy who will recognize that he just went into a trance, he was just acquired, and then look down at the little human that was touching him. Right. And you've given it away now. Also, I suppose if the Andalites had the ability to touch any creature and put them into a trance, this war would have been over a long time ago. That and also like they're at war. Yeah, if you got close enough and touched them for like a couple of seconds and could get them into that transit. But there are people shooting at you. Right. There are lasers and shit. When that guy has a gun, it's much harder to put him into a trance. That's fair. Also, they're in fucking space. We're picturing a regular ass war. And that does right. happen. There are, there are terrestrial wars. I like guess not terrestrial, but you know what I mean? Land-based. But like, they're fighting in fucking spaceships. Yeah. It don't matter. Very advanced tech, clearly. Mm -hmm. And they've been here for a while because there was a moon base. Yeah, this yep. is it, 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 it. It's a much, much larger galactic conflict happening. This is just one little view on that. Yeah, this is one theater of war. It's an important one. But at the end of the day, like one of the things that happens is when they get those powers, they are told they've been here for a while. I sent a message back to my army so that you could get help. The Andalites will not be here for at least a year. Yeah. Good luck. And then the last really important thing they find out 
is that Jake's brother is one of the ones that's fighting it, not one of the ones that has accepted mm -hmm. it. So they're pretty convinced he can get, like if he can separate his, his brother from the brain slug, he'll probably get him back. We should probably cover the actual last thing that comes up because I think we've covered most of it. Most of this one, like this book is largely an info dump. Right, this is the setup. Like it's just, this is how it works. These are the rules. This is how bad the situation is. Yeah, this is literally the pilot. There is a hard two hour time limit. Everybody goes in, everybody's, you know, causing chaos, turning into monsters. You know, they had captured Cassie uh, to try to put a yerk in her head. And Jake turns into a tiger. Marco turns into a gorilla. Uh, Rachel has the elephant. They fight their way out. Tobias has been turning into a red-tailed hawk to act as their scout, which means that it's very hard for him to navigate when someone is throwing fireballs. So Tobias has to hide and wait for his opportunity to sneak out. So our last scene is Jake at home going like, well, we helped some people. I guess that's good. And we got out alive. I'm pretty sure Tobias eventually made it out. And then he gets a knock at the window. There's a little bird that hops in. It's like, oh, good, man. I'm glad you're alive. It's good that you're here. Here, you know what? You can turn back. You can take my bed. You got, you got to sleep for the night. You've had a rough day. Yeah. About that. Yeah. And Tobias ain't a boy anymore. Nope. Tobias, Tobias is, a bird. is a bird. Tobias is going to be a bird until the day he dies. Yeah. That's, it's pretty heavy for a youth book to throw that in right away. That's an interesting choice from the writer, but it really does kind of underline like it's these, these kids are very much in danger all the time. And as much as this is a gift, it's also a burden. This book is really cool if you know the start and the end, right? Because at the end of this, like this is something where when you read it back, you can see the war story in it, but it also feels very much like a young adult adventure, and you could read it with that sort of naive take. But like I said, when you know the end, like, no, this is like, there are little throwaway things, the way that Jake words things where it sounds like, you know, the adult, the man thinking back to when this happened to him. Right. There's an element of trauma in that voice. It is a different voice than when we're actually with Jake as a teenager. The narrator, every single book starts with, this is my name. I'm not going to tell you my last name. I'm not going to tell you what city this is, because if you knew that, they could find me. Once you have that lens, you can see the little bits where she has specifically written these as very, very broken people telling the story of what broke them. It's a very good setup for the rest of it. Yeah. And then you're going to hit just the weird shit. That's what I keep being told. Like, it's kind of weird now, but I can't see it's going to get weirder. I look forward to it. This is weird in setup territory. Let me, let me give you a smattering of things. Wait, no, 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 no. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Let me find them out and we'll talk about that. Oh, no, no. I think you'll have a lot of fun finding them out in reasonable ways. I'm going to just say words at you. Okay. So later on, you're going to find about find out about the conflict between uh, the space wizard and also uh, intergalactic Satan that's been going on for millennia. Oh, that kind of weird. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there is the uh, calling of the species is generous. There's a type of dog robot that's been living under holograms the whole time, pretending to be people. Uh, there okay. is. 
Dog cyborgs, gotcha. Yeah, uh, there is another race of tiny aliens. Uh, I don't even remember why they were relevant. I think mostly because the Yerks can't take them over because their heads is too little. Because <laughs> they're too small. <laughs> they just can't fit. Yeah. That's the best. And then, like I said, there's all the stuff where it loops back around. And I honestly, at this point, knowing some of the ways that it connects back, because there are so many books, it feels like there should be no way that all of it was planned. But there's bits like Tobias's connection with Elfangor, the Andalite prince. That'll come back around. There are weird little connections all over the place where I'm just like, there is no way that you went in knowing but you sold it so hard that it feels incredibly intentional. Well, this is like as a DM, right? When you're playing a game and you throw something out and your players are like, well, what about this? You're like, oh, well, you solved my thing. <laughs> they think you're so brilliant because you tied it, but you tied it you know, behind the scene in that, in that moment with like two pieces of missing string. The one that's like explicit foreshadowing is uh, when they go in to get. So they meet the prince. The prince is dying. He's like, go in. There's a little blue box. Get the box. The box is important. The box is how they get the morphing powers. Uh, and while they're in there, they look over and they see a picture. And it's four Andalites. Two are clearly much bigger than the other two. And they come back out and they're like, is that your family? He's like, yeah, that's not important right now. You're, you're going to die. So let's deal with this. Four of them. Mom, dad, Elfangor. It's like, there are times where it's very definitely foreshadowing because that's going to come back within the first couple of books. You know? Okay, cool. All right, gotcha. Then there are times where, like I said, you're talking 30, 40 books in the future and you're like, no, you didn't. Shut up. <laughs> no but you way. get there eventually. It lines up perfectly and with enough intention in the writing that I would believe it if you said that, no, K.A. Applegate sat down and outlined this shit and knew what she was doing from day one. But also, no, you didn't. You didn't. You couldn't have. You might have had like an idea of how it's going to start and end in some of the middle, but you didn't lay out all 50 books and how they were going to connect. Like you got red strings going back and forth. But we'll see. We'll see how long I can keep you on this train for. So far, I'm on board. I'm enjoying it so far. Uh, we'll dive into chapter two this week and we'll record another. Thank you for joining us for Podspeak. Animorphs was written by K.A. Applegate. Our show is edited by Aram, and our theme music is composed by Kai Engel. For more information about us, ways to support the show, and to hear all of the podcasts we produce, head over to deadghostpro.com. And remember, the controllers are everywhere. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, 
and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Bantwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The ancient mountainous deserts to the south of Faerun are the places where mortals first raised great temples and unlocked powerful secrets. A kingdom once fractured by infighting has been united under the iron claw of the red dragon, Chazar. The great lizard's quest for immortality has become an all-consuming obsession. His need for worshippers has set him on a path against the old gods of these lands, and they will not go quietly. An unlikely cabal of deities has banded together to undermine Jazar and ensure that their temples remain protected and active. They've traced tendrils of fate to preferred timelines, then selected five mortals who had the best chance of bringing those futures to fruition. You will take on the role of one of these chosen in Death to the Dragon King. Find out more about this Start Playing Games campaign and all of my other available games at aram.gay.